Well, good morning. Sound, uh, sound like it was winter, right? Coming in this morning with the wind howling and uh, everything else going on. If you didn't know better, you might think it was like 20 below outside, but uh, I'm glad it's not that. But um, we are here together as God's children, and that's what matters, and uh, great to have you here. I got a text this morning at about 7 o'clock from Ron Lindholm telling me that his dad had been taken again to the hospital this past Friday. And uh, Dale has been, Dr. Dale Lindholm has been struggling now for a couple of weeks, is back in the hospital with significant muscle weakness. And that means Dolores is also in a care center now. So you'd be praying for Dale and Dolores. Ron and his wife will be coming up. Uh, most of the week, so they'll be here, be praying for them and for uh, direction decisions they'll, I'm sure, have to be making for Doc. And I'd like to pray for them um, this morning as, as we begin together. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that uh, we can pray and lift up Dale and Dolores to you this morning, knowing that uh, they are in your hands, knowing that you are the great physician. And so, God, we pray for strength for Dale and uh, for the doctors as they care for him, as they seek to determine all that's going on and how best to treat that. And for Dolores, as she's in the care center, I know that's a burden on Dale's heart. And so I pray that you'd minister to them. For Ron, even this morning, is in the middle of all this, he's preaching. And so use him, um, minister to him, for he and his wife and family and for their church. And God, we commit them to you. God, we're, we're grateful for Jesus Christ. And as we think about this Palm Sunday as he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem and yet only a few days after that went to the cross to provide forgiveness of sin with his shed blood and his death on the cross. And then a week from today as we celebrate Easter when Jesus rose from the dead, alive, victorious, defeating death and sin for the glory of God and for the good of the church. Father, don't let us just go through this time of the year in a routine way, just another Christian holiday. But God, that we would be able to be reminded and to remind others of the significance of of this coming weekend, for it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. So I don't know if you saw the story, it's been all over the internet, but uh, a Tennessee church's form of discipline that went viral, and uh, a woman who had been attending West Sparta Church of Christ in Sparta, Tennessee, received a letter at the end of February from three of the church elders. And she shared the photo 
of the church discipline letter on Facebook, and it went viral. And uh, we don't have all the details. You can go online and find that article. In the letter, the church elders addressed the woman's lack of attendance in recent weeks and her living with a man while unmarried. Letter also reads that uh, after attempts to discuss the situation with the lady, they instead followed through with a letter. Now, my intent isn't to discuss the rightness or wrongness or how it was done or, or not done, but to simply say it's not the first time that a church has been faced with immorality among its members and the need to respond with church discipline. And if you'll open your Bible with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to look at verse Verses 1 to 13, we'll deal with about half of that text today. And uh, maybe you have your smartphone or tablet with you and whatever it is, your Bible that you can mark up, that you can underline, circle words, um, move through all of that, highlight, make notes so that you're aware of what's going on because this is uh, uh, quite, a, quite a passage of Scripture as we deal with this this morning. And um, I'd like to read those verses for you. So please follow along as I read. And again, take notes um, so that you know what's going on. These are some significant verses as Paul moves forward in uh, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in the first 13 verses, I'll be reading them for you. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out, your, uh, or put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business 
Is it of mind to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Wow. <laughs> now that's quite a text, huh? And, uh, and yet part of God's word, God's inspired word to us as believers living in 2021. Now at first glance it may seem that there is a complete absolute disconnect between the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians that we've spent uh, a few months on already and now chapter 5. Uh, Paul has been addressing in those first four chapters, 25% of the book, the, the issue of division and disunity in the church. And uh, he now jumps into dealing with immorality and the need for church discipline. Uh, seemingly a whole new unrelated problem. And yet, not really. There is a connection. And as we think about the connection between the first four chapters and where we are headed today, you see, if there is division in the church, and the church is not focused on Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the message of the cross that Paul has been talking about, there will be a lack of agreement on our response to sin if we are not standing together as one in agreement on the message of the cross we'll have a problem dealing with any kind of sin let alone the kind of immorality that is mentioned here one writer puts it this way unity must be established before drastic action can be urged otherwise the action would have been that of a party spirit or a partisan spirit as we're talking and the division of the church might be made worse you see if there wasn't unity if the division that Paul had been addressing I'm of Paul I'm of Apollos I'm of Peter I'm of Christ if one of those groups one of those partisan groups had brought up the need to discipline because of their immorality, and there was no unity. It would have been viewed just as their own private agenda and not really having to do with the work of the church there in Corinth. And so unity was critical. The message of the cross is at the heart of dealing with sin. We must understand that. Jesus sent, or Jesus himself came as the perfect Lamb of God, to die for us, to die to pay the penalty for our sin, because sin is that bad. And as we talk about dealing with sin and responding to sin in the church, it is important that we understand that Jesus, the Passover lamb, and we'll see that in the text, probably won't get to it as much today, but we will deal with that down in verse 7 when we talk about, uh, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. We will be celebrating, remembering the death of Christ on the cross this coming Friday, this good Friday. And of course, today, yes, is Palm Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday. 
But we're reminded as we see this, how in the world could an individual who claims the name of Jesus Christ, part of the church at Corinth, how in the world could he be involved in the kind of sin that we're going to be looking at here this morning? And yet, how in the world could that crowd of people who shouted Hosanna, who praised Jesus Christ on that Palm Sunday, five days later, be shouting, crucify him crucify him and yet that's what we find in the text today sin in the church and this morning i want you to understand the biblical response that ought to be part of our lives to sin in the church um, so we're going to look at uh, so the first eight verses today we'll deal with it again after easter We'll take next Sunday out and focus on Easter, but we will come back to this and talk about the process and how this all happens. But first of all, in the first two verses then, so what's the problem? What's the problem? Well, look at verse 1. It is actually reported. There's shock as Paul writes that. It is actually reported as if I can't believe what I'm writing or what I've heard. That there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Unsafe people, people without Jesus, those who have no relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul means when he says pagans. He's talking about godless people. He says even people who don't know Jesus Christ don't tolerate this kind of a sin. That's how shocking it would be that Paul's talking about. What is that sin? He says a man is sleeping with his father's wife. We're talking sexual immorality. Now, it doesn't say a man is sleeping with his mother. If we did one of those father's wife, right? My father's wife would be my mother. But that's not what Paul says. It doesn't say a man is sleeping with his mother. Why? Because undoubtedly it wasn't. In fact, the word could have been used that would have been mother, but it's not. Undoubtedly, we're talking about a stepmother. Whether or not his father was still alive, whether or not they were separated, divorced, or whatever it may have been, we don't know the details of the relationship except that it was sexually immoral and it was considered to be incest even though it wouldn't have been directly, physically with his actual mother, even the stepmother in the Bible, in the Roman law, considered it incest. Kind not tolerated even by godless people, pagans. The Old Testament says that incest is punishable by death. The Roman law of the day said incest was punishable by death. So that's the significance of the sin, the immorality. Verse 2, and you are proud. He's talking to the believers in the church. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? So what's the problem? Number one, sexual immorality. Number two, pride. He says, you're proud. 
Paul had been talking about this as characteristic of the church in Corinth since he began this letter. The first four chapters referred to pride numerous times. And as you would go back and, and review where we've been, Paul's constantly talking about the pride, about being puffed up as individual believers. And the pride is that simply this, you're boasting, verse 6, he said, is not good. Now, we don't know exactly what he says they were boasting about at this point. I don't believe that they were boasting about the sin that took place. Hey, look at our church. Yeah, this is what we got going. Woohoo! We got liberty. No, I don't believe that's what the boasting was about. But I think their prideful attitude was that we don't need to deal with this or that it'll take care of itself, but simply that their attitude was every bit as bad as the sin itself. They were proud despite the sin, not because of the sin. They were a proud people before the sin took place. And he's saying, your pride, your arrogance, you're not mourning over the sin. He says, you should, shouldn't you be instead mourning about that sin? Now, he doesn't mean that they just sit down and weep and, and, and mourn in that. That should have been part of it. But the mourning that would lead to action not just a lamenting if you'll remember when we studied back in the old testament and and back in the book of habakkuk and how there was lamenting over the sin of israel on the part of the prophet habakkuk it's not just pure lamenting not just grieving about the sin but grieving to the point of being willing to deal with the sin and that's what Paul says is the problem. That's their pride. You don't even have enough spiritual humility and sense to understand that there ought to be sorrow and shame on your part because of what has been happening in your church. And when Paul said in verse 1, the way it was worded, a man is sleeping with his father's wife, it wasn't just a one-time deal. It was an ongoing immoral relationship. And they ought to be grieving over the sin and taking action. And then thirdly, he says, the end of verse 2, and shouldn't you have put out of your fellowship, out of your midst, that is not the word fellowship, probably a better word, a different translation could be used there because it really just means mist. It's not the fellowship, not mist, M-I-S-T, midst, in the middle of. So it's not the word fellowship, but it is referring to the church. It's referring to the church. Shouldn't you rather have put that individual out of the church? Now you may say, well, I thought there were steps to follow. We're going to get to that in a couple of weeks. But we're just dealing with the fact of church discipline. Yes, because you see a little bit different approach to what Paul's talking about here than what we read in Matthew 18, which is typically a passage that we also refer to when we talk about church discipline. Two different situations will, will bring a consistency. We'll coordinate those together in a couple of weeks. But what he's saying here is you should have put that man out of your church. There's undoubtedly already they followed through with steps to do what was necessary. And he says you should have put him out of your church because of his sin. 
So what needs to be done? Well, that's the segue right there from the end of verse 2. Right into verse 3. Again, shouldn't this man have been put out of your church? We'll look at verse 3. For my part, even though I am not physically present, Paul was in Ephesus. He says, I'm not there. But as one who is present with you in this way, in spirit, I'm with you in spirit. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, when the church is gathered together, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, what, the power of the crucified, risen Jesus to deal with sin, when that is all true, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Yikes! What in the world does that mean? Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. It's not something that sounds real nice. Not something that sounds like anything I'd want to be, have had happen to me. Well, let's look at that and try to dig. This is a, this is a difficult text, folks. Absolutely one of those passages in the Bible that... All kinds of commentaries have been written on, all kinds of information, all kinds of perspective and views. And I'll share some things here with you and give you where I've landed, but you'll need to study through some things on your own because it's a huge, huge topic. One view is that the flesh that is referred to here is the man's physical body and that the destruction of his flesh then is his death. In other words, Paul, some would view that Paul is saying, and, and that's pretty much a traditional view that's been around for a long time. So that may sound like really harsh to you, and yet, folks, all throughout here this morning, what we need to understand as the church is how much God hates sin. You see, there are a lot of things that God does in this world today that we don't get. We're like, why in the world would God do that? And when, if we would have a greater understanding of God's hatred of sin, it would answer a lot of questions. Because God hates sin, and he hates it in the church. He hates it in our lives as individuals. Believers. So the idea would be that the flesh refers to the man's physical body and it's the destruction of the flesh would be his death. Now much like the death, let me give you some illustrations where this is not without some support, obviously. Ananias and Sapphira, back in Acts chapter 5, if you remember them. They lied to the Holy Spirit and what happened? Do you remember that story? On the spot, boom, Ananias is dead. God takes his life. And then his wife, Sapphira, comes up a little bit later on, and boom, she lies, and boom, she's gone. Both, God takes their life. Why? Because the Bible says they lied to God. And God took them out. Right here in the letter to 1 Corinthians, back in chapter 11. Chapter 11 is where we go every Sunday that we have communion. And when we talk about Paul's teaching on communion... And if you remember, as we've been there at times with 
our communion services. We talk about how Paul first started in verse 17. He says in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. More harm than good. You've heard me talk about that. You've heard me read that. Wow, a communion service does more harm than good. Why? Because people were abusing the communion, the Lord's Supper. And you get down to verse 28. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Verse 30, that is why many among you are weak and sick and a number have fallen asleep. A number have fallen asleep. Now, falling asleep in church isn't anything new, right? By the way, those of you, that was a hint. Somebody need to wake up. Just kidding, just kidding. What's he talking about when he says falling asleep? They died. They died. Why? Because God took their life. They were abusing the Lord's Supper. And God took their life. God took them home to heaven. 1 John chapter 5. Verses uh, 14, 16 and 17. John talks about the sin unto death. And if you go and read that, he says the sin unto death, it's not a specific sin, but we believe the sin unto death is the point at which in the life of a believer, they're involved in regular sinful behavior, a, a rebellion against God, whatever it may be, a disobedience, and to the point finally that God has had enough and he takes them home to heaven so that they no longer can do damage to the name of Christ and the testimony of the church. Sin unto death, that's what that is. It's not the unpardonable sin that Jesus talks about in Matthew. Note the sin unto death, 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, when God takes the life of a believer because that believer's life has been such a terrid, terrible, horrid testimony to the name of Jesus Christ that God's saying, you know what? This person has had his time. He's beyond repenting and turning from the sin. I'm taking him home. That's what we, Well, so there would be instances of that. And it could be that. But all of those instances and others like that that you might find, there is no involvement of the assembled church like there is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When Ananias and Sapphira, there was no body of believers uh, assembling, hearing how they lied to the Holy Spirit. No, just on the spot, God took them. In the book of Corinthians, in the letter, chapter 11, the abuse of the Lord's Supper, there was no gathering of the church to, hey, let's deliver this person over to the destruction of the flesh, to Satan. No, it, there's no mention of the assembled body of believers. And certainly in 1 John chapter 5, the sin unto death, that's God's direct taking of a life. God's choice, not an assembled church's decision. So that would be one. Another would be simply excommunication, where they're taken out of church membership. They are... Uh, set aside not to have the, the believers in the church or not to have regular connection, regular fellowship, regular community, regular involvement with that individual so that they will understand 
when they were out from underneath now the blessing of the church, they are no longer part of the worship of the body. They are no longer part of the fellowship of the body. They are no longer part of the serving of the body of Christ. Why? They're set aside because of their sin. And the idea of excommunication isn't just let's get rid of these clowns. They're an embarrassment to all of us. We don't need them connected with our church. No, that's not it at all. It's when they're removed from the body and when God's people treat them in that way. As Jesus said, we do publicans and Pharisees and sinners more in an evangelistic way, not in a loving, caring, body of Christ church kind of way. Why? So that they feel the loss. So that they feel the weight of not being able to gather together with God's people. And so that hopefully through that time, instead of experiencing the love and care of the church, they're put back into the world system, the realm of Satan, where God will permit Satan to attack that believer, his body, his life, so that he feels the weight of the sin and it's intended to produce repentance. Church discipline is always intended to produce repentance and restoration to bring that sinner back to a right relationship with God and the church. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're in chapter 5, if you wanted to look back just a chapter or two, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. He's talking to you, yourselves, believers. The church are God's temple. Us, together, we are God's temple. Yes, individually, we are the dwelling place. The temple to the nation of Israel, to the Jews, was the dwelling place of God. In the Old Testament, it was the tabernacle. And then they built a temple, and it's, that was the symbol of God's dwelling place. And he says, don't you know, he says, that you yourselves are God's temple. You as God's people, as the church, the body of Christ, are where God dwells together in your midst. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, that word destroy means to corrupt. It means to create disorder. It means to mess up. It means to render useless. So if any of you mess up the church, if any of you by your lives, whatever you do, if you seek to destroy, if you seek to make the church messed up, creating disorder so that it cannot be on mission, Paul says, God will destroy that person. Same word. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. So when we talk about church discipline, when we talk about hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that's serious stuff, folks. I think it definitely involves excommunication, but I came across some, some thoughts from Scripture that I think Paul is concerned about the spiritual. There's two aspects of the concern here. He's concerned about the spiritual well-being of the church. 
You can't miss that in these verses. But he's also concerned about the spiritual well-being and health of that individual sinner, the man who was sleeping with his father's wife. He's concerned about the individual, that there be repentance and restoration, but he's concerned about the body of Christ as well. That that body of Christ, the church, isn't moved off mission, isn't hurt because of the sin and the disreputable behavior of that sinner who's part of that church. Plus, he doesn't want to see that sin spread in the church. And so the concern there, so repentance and restoration of the individual, the protection of the church, but the destruction of the flesh, I think, also means the destruction of his fleshly desires. I don't think it's the destruction of his body, but as he's put out of the fellowship of the church, of God's people, the flesh stands for a certain orientation of life, when we in ourselves are so sin-bent, we want what we want. We want to pursue our way, the desires of the flesh. Back in chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul called some of the believers fleshly. Being controlled by the sin, by their flesh. Characterized by self-sufficiency that wars against God. And when we deliver that one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, the destruction of those fleshly desires, so that that individual understands that those aren't desires that come from following the Spirit. Now you say, where do you get that? Well, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Now you could read all of the book of Galatians, you could dig into chapter 5, but chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, Paul says this, so I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's talking to believers, now keep that in mind. Walk in the Spirit so that you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. This man who had his father's wife was satisfying the desires of the flesh was not walking in the spirit verse 17 for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit you think that would apply in this case in first corinthians 5 yes the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh they are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. That's, I believe, what Paul's talking about. There's that constant battle between the flesh and the spirit going on. This individual man in verses 1 and 2 gave into the desires of the flesh, ignored the, the moving of the spirit of God in his life, and when he is set aside from God's people, when he is put out of the church, excommunicated and missing the fellowship and the love and the care and the power and the protection of the church of God in his life, hopefully it will be causing him to move away from the desires of the flesh, to get rid of the desires of the flesh and respond to the spirit of God. 
Paul says the same thing. We're not going to look at the text, but if you want to write down Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. Romans 7, verses 14 to 25. Do you remember when Paul would say, hey, the things that I want to do, I can't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. Woe is me. That's Romans 7. Check it out. You'll see that's, that's what's going on. The flesh and the spirit are battling. They're contrary. And it's the end of the sin nature. One more thought, and you can write down 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. And that's where Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, my son, 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. Let me read it. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling, he's talking about the word of God, so that by recalling them you may fight the battle well, fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. Now, he doesn't say handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. He says that I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. How can Satan teach us anything good? Because that's what it sounds like, right? That's what's going on here in chapter 5. Well, they're not turned over to Satan to be executed. I don't believe that. Some do, and okay, I'm open to learning. But they are turned over to learn something that will bring about repentance and restoration in their lives. How could Satan be used for good? Well, how about if you remember Paul's thorn in the flesh? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. Paul says what about that thorn in the flesh? Where did it come from? The messenger of Satan, say it, yes. What? What? Paul? Yes. Verse 7, or because of these surpassingly great revelations, Paul says, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. And what's the result of the messenger of Satan? So that the power of Christ may rest on me. Wow. Is God all powerful? Is he all sovereign? Can he do anything he wants to do? You see, you have to remember, Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's not omnipotent, all-powerful. Oh, he has power, but he's not all-powerful because God is. And neither is he omnipresent. Sometimes we think Satan is everywhere. No, he's not. God is. And we don't give Satan more credit than he deserves. Now, don't give him less than he deserves. Because he is like a roaring lion out 
to devour us and ruin our lives. But he can only do what God allows him to do. And the messenger of Satan was a tool that God used to teach Paul about the power of God resting on him in his life. Now, I don't know if that helps you or confuses you. Dig into the scriptures. I believe we absolutely, when we get to the point, and we'll talk about the process in two weeks, but when we get to the point that it's time to, to deliver somebody, to, church dis, to exercise church discipline in the life of an individual who refuses to respond, to repent, who will not be restored to right relationship with God and God's people, then church discipline must take place, and we've done that. Can I say to you this morning, church discipline ought always to be, ought always to be a last resort. So what's really at stake? Well, verses 6 to 8, what's really at stake is the purity and mission of the church. The purity and mission of the church is what Paul's dealing. He's dealing with the individual in the first five verses. Now he's dealing with the church. And it is the testimony, the purity, the mission of the church that's at stake here. And Paul says in verse 6, he says again, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. What's he talking about? He says, well, yeast leaven is typically a metaphor for sin in the Bible. Most, like, most of the time it's used, that's how it's used. It's, it's an illustration of sin and what it can do. And a little, le- a little yeast, like, man, I'm having a problem getting that L and Y out. That's a tongue twister. I don't, man. Anyway, a little yeast. I want to say leaven. Both words are there and there's a difference, but I'm not going to go there this morning, right? A little yeast leavens the whole lump, right? Can I just say it easier than all of that? It won't be a tongue twister. One bad apple does spoil the whole bunch. That's what Paul's talking about. That's the principle. And the sin that's represented in the little piece of dough will infect the whole thing. And sin in the church will affect and influence the entire church. And more than just a bad example, more than just negative publicity, Leaven or sin will affect the church. And we must remember the Passover. Do you remember the Passover? They were not allowed to have unleavened bread. That's today's Passover. Do you remember a couple years ago when Tom was here and we had the Seder dinner on Good Friday evening right here? And he told how that was and how that worked. And and in the Passover today as, as it's celebrated, they will do a ceremonial search throughout the house to find any breadcrumbs, leavened breadcrumbs. So they clean them all up so there's no leaven representing sin in the house. And that's what Paul's talking about. We don't want sin in the church. 
And that was done on the morning that the lamb was sacrificed. Ceremonial search of the house. Christ, our Passover lamb, was crucified for us. You remember back in Exodus, the Passover. If the Israelites would put the blood of that lamb on the doors and the sides and the post over top, the death angel would pass over them. And they'd be saved. If they didn't, they'd be destroyed. And what Paul's talking about, he's making mention of that, saying that even in the church today, we need to make sure that we get rid of the leaven, get rid of the sin in our lives, in our midst, in our church. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, was crucified for us. And listen to me, his death should affect life change and transformation of your life, of my life, of our lives. Jesus didn't just die because he didn't have anything else to do. He died to take away sin, to forgive sin in our lives, to bring about life change, to bring a right standing before God. That's why we need Jesus, for the forgiveness of sin to be right before God and to bring about life change and transformation for the glory of God. You know what that is? We've been saying all along. Because look at verse 7. Paul says, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch. All right? Unleavened, no sin, a new unleavened batch. Then what are those next words? Look at it. As you really are. Why would he say that? Because they're believers. Because they're the church. We've been saying all along, do you remember this? God's holy people must become what they already are. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 7 right there. You really are, as you really are, what? An unleavened batch, a body of believers, a church with no sin because the Passover lamb, lamb died for you. God's holy people must become what they already are. Live holy lives. So what, how, what, what, wrap all this up. Well, the purity of the church is a serious matter. So is unity. The purity of the church is a serious matter. There is no such thing as private morality or immorality. Do you understand that? We don't, as believers, as part of the body of Christ, as those whom the Passover lamb has died for, we don't have the right to say, hey, it's none of your business, it's my life. Leave me alone. Why? Because we're members of the body. And when we're not acting in agreement with the truth of the word of God, we who know Jesus have a responsibility to deal with sin in our midst. Sin is very much the business of every believer in the church. It is our responsibility to deal with sin in our midst. We must not tolerate sin, immorality, division, or any sin. 
That's what Paul's saying. Warren Wiersbe says this, great quote, church discipline is not a group of pious policemen out to catch a criminal. Rather, it is a group of broken-hearted brothers and sisters seeking to restore an erring member of the family. Sometimes we think church discipline is like a witch hunt. Uh, we'll find somebody, we'll get them. That's not what it is at all. This is a great statement. A group of broken-hearted brothers and sisters, broken-hearted by sin, broken-hearted by the sin of one of us, and seeking to bring restoration and repentance to an erring member of the family. And then, let me wrap it up with this, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, because you say, all right, what is our response? That's how I started. What is our response? How should the church respond to sin in its midst? Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brothers and sisters, talking to those of us who know Jesus, if someone is caught in a sin, a brother or sister is caught in a sin, part of the body, the church, you who live by the Spirit, not you who live by the flesh, that's contrary, that's going on that battle, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. You know why that last verse, last statement, sentence is there? Because of the proud Corinthians. Watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. You who live by the Spirit, when you see a brother or sister overtaken in sin, deal with it. Have a conversation. Because the unity the purity, the mission of the church is at stake. Let me pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Oh, this is some heavy stuff, God. And in the midst of all of this, don't let us miss that simply put, the Bible is teaching us that we who know Jesus have a responsibility to deal with sin in our church, in the lives of individuals, in a loving, gentle, kind way. Oh God, help us to take sin seriously and to love one another enough to deal with sin. Pray that we as individuals would first be focused on our own lives to make sure that we are who we ought to be as a child of God. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Hey, good Friday. Three different times. Sign up and then Sunday morning, next Sunday is Easter, folks. Huh? Isn't that going to be great? Plan to be with us. We're going to have a great time celebrating what Jesus has done for us. Have a great week.